We're in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 27, but I want to go back whenever I cover a passage. Many times I feel like I haven't covered it sufficiently, so I go back and I'll give you half a sermon again, trying to cover it sufficiently. And I want to do that again this morning. So I want to look again at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 21. And let me read those to you. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, as you know, we talked about those verses last week. But let me draw your attention to verse 6, where our Lord says, It is done. Finality in those words. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And John will describe those in verses 9 through 27 of this chapter. But verse 8, we have a reminder by God. Not all of mankind overcomes also in verse 8, we have a list of those who will not, will not inherit God's heaven. This heaven that will descend down to earth, to this new earth, not everyone will find a place there. And this is a reminder to us, we need to overcome. And we think maybe those that are knowing, uh, not knowing rather, have refused to follow Christ. You know, they've rejected Christ because of maybe ignorance or they use that as an excuse. That's not an option with God. That's not an option because by the time humanity reaches this point, this point which I call the great divide, the point where our Lord says, it is done, by the time we get there, there will be no ignorance of who God is and who God isn't. Heaven and earth will await believers, overcomers, hell in the lake of fire for those in verse 8. So verse 6 to me is the great divide where God declares it is done. It's the point in time where Jesus says no more chances, no more opportunities, no more can I freely come before the Lord to turn or repent. No longer will I have the chance to be an overcomer. It's over with. It's done. You and I, we live our lives today in what we call the age of grace. Uh, the time of the new covenant. And we're granted repentance by simply coming before the Lord, 
with a change of heart, wanting to change our lives, being sorrowful for our sin, confessing our sins, and repentance, a great gift of God, is granted to us just by us having remorse over our sins and asking the Lord to forgive us. We're granted repentance. However, the age of grace, the new covenant, all comes to an end when Jesus says, it's done. It's over. No more. And the opportunity to, re to turn from sin, to repent, is, is finished. And for a believer, only heaven awaits. And that's so encouraging. But verse 8, you got to look at verse 8 because verse 8 is a warning to all of humanity. A warning to unrepentant mankind. And you notice God doesn't apologize for verse 8. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, please, you know, accept me. No. He says, no more chances for repentance. No more opportunities for a right standing with me. And the finality of this verse at the close of Revelation is sort of amazing because that is not how we know God. We know God as a loving, second-chance God who always gives us that opportunity to repent and turn from our sins. But not always. For the day will come when He says, It's done. You've had all the opportunities you're going to have. No more. And that's summed up in verse 11 of chapter 22. Look over there. Turn the page over and look at verse 11 of chapter 22. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Notice the finality of these words. There is no more opportunities. There is no more persuasion by the Holy Spirit for sinful man to turn from his sin. That alone, that finality should cause us to appreciate God's grace which abounds today in the age of grace in the new covenant that we experience with the Lord. Conviction of sin happens to be a great blessing because conviction causes us to go to the Lord and write things with Him, ask for His forgiveness, to turn from our sinful ways. But in verse 8, let me again draw your attention to verse 8. It says, but the cowardly. And then what I think that follows is a description of the cowardly. Unbelieving, abominable, adulterers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. All I think those do is describe the cowardly. That's personal opinion. But he said, the Word of God says, All of these shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, or better known as hell itself. At the end of the age of grace, Jesus will declare it's done.
It is done. Now here's the thing. There will not be one single person cast into the eternal lake of fire, eternal hell. There will not be one person that is cast into hell through ignorance. Not one. No one will be able to say to our Lord, I did not know the path of salvation. No one will be able to say, Oh Lord, if I would have only known, I would have turned. No. God is and has been and will be faithful to reveal himself to man. During the tribulation period, for instance, there's two angels, or at least two angels, that fly through the midst of heaven. What is their message? They declare the gospel. Turn, repent. Do not, you know, take the mark of the beast. There's two angels that fly through heaven telling the message. And then you have all the tribulation period where wrath is poured out by God upon sinful man and Satan. And it's God demonstrating his power and authority to everyone that is on earth. The millennium period speaks of God. The thousand-year reign of Christ. When it has ran its course, where there's no evil outside force or influence to be allowed, you would still have what is called the cowardly, the unbelieving. The sinful, unrepentant person who has chosen the cowardly path has chosen it knowingly. It will not be through ignorance, and you will not be able to use that excuse before God. The cowardly are simply those that have been afraid to take a stand for righteousness and godliness knowingly. That is a coward. That's God's description of a coward. I have a confession for you. If you've attended here for any while, you notice I don't give a lot of altar calls. I have a reason for that. <laughs> it's not just, oh golly, I missed. I should have given an altar call. No. I don't give a lot of altar calls simply because you, you're, you're hard-pressed to find those in the New Testament. You're really hard-pressed. Um, you have men that say, what must I do to be saved? And hey, I will try to help anyone who wants to be saved to be saved. But I want any person that received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, I want him to know what he is doing. Because I have seen, in my limited scope of things as a Christian, I've seen way too many evangelists, way too many preachers who want people to turn to Christ, and they never ask that person to weigh the cost of being a Christian. I've got news for you. As a Christian, you will suffer persecution. How many times do you have an evangelist tell you that? 
In America, it's social persecution. And that's perhaps the strongest persecution there is, peer pressure. But it's a matter of life and death in many parts of the world. The Muslim world, to accept Christ, often means a death sentence. Your own family, many times, in the Muslim world will kill you if you accept Christ. So, in the Muslim world, there are no cowardly Christians. It's non-existent. In China, to choose Christ is to throw away any hopes that you have of being financially successful in life. There are no cowardly Christians in China. You suffer persecution. And throughout the world, persecution follows the decision to accept Christ as your Savior. So in the rest of the world, there are few, very few, cowardly Christians. It's only in America, in what we call the free world, that we attempt to ease a person into Christianity. And all I have to do is say, look back on your own life. And many of you lost friendships when you became a Christian. Many of you went from a fun party guy to a stick in the mud, to a Bible thumper. <laughs> and part of the reason we Christians, part of the reason we come to church, part of the reason we fellowship with one another is we're an encouragement to one another. It's comforting to know that there's others who believe like I believe and take the Word of God at face value. Now a little warning, but as persecution grows in America, and it is growing, by the way, the more we will want to come together, the more we will appreciate one another. But being cowardly should never have a place in a Christian's life. Now John, that's verses 6 and 8, he will hear from one of the angels who a thousand years earlier, before the millennium, poured out a bowl of wrath upon the Lord, uh, upon the earth, excuse me. And so let me read the rest of chapter 21, 9 through 27. Then one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and he talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, he had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. These gates on the east, excuse me, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. 
Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, its length as great as its breadth, and it measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of the walls was as jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now I'm going to attempt to describe stones to you, gemstones. So don't pick on me. This is a new, new area for me. But I've written down the pronunciation, so... Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to If you read them, you wouldn't know what I was talking about, but hopefully they'll help me pronounce. The foundation of the wall of city were adorned with all kinds of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. That's an easy one. The second, sapphire. Another one. Now the third, calcione. Mm-hmm. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardis. Sardius. The seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth burl, the ninth topaz, the tenth hmm, chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth uh, amethyst, whatever. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall be not shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but thereby shall but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This angel that speaks with John has appeared to John before the millennial reign, and now he appears to John after the millennial reign. So you have over a thousand year period passing between the times of this visitation of this angel with John. But there's more than just conversation with this angel for John. This angel carries John away and he takes John in the spirit to a great and high mountain, a vista point. And he shows John the great city. He shows John holy Jerusalem that we know as heaven, heaven of heavens. And this gigantic cube or pyramid-shaped city is descending towards the new earth. The size of the city is given to us. It's 1,500-mile cube which is approximately the size of our moon. Now, to get an idea of the size of heaven, the new Jerusalem, it would reach from the Rocky Mountains to Washington, D.C. 
from Maine to Miami. It is huge. Henry Morris, a Christian scientist, he made some calculations about heaven. And I don't know, maybe this will help you. It uh, didn't help me a lot. But if 25%, if one quarter of heaven was given over to residential areas, residential neighborhoods, you might say, and he had to pick a number, and if 20 billion people are in heaven, that's a lot of folks, by the way, each resident would have 75 cube acres. That's only a quarter of heaven. If 20 billion of us are there, we would each have 75 acres. Now, there are many scholars who believe the New Jerusalem, with all its splendid colors, its glorious features, that it will orbit the new earth. Consider that for a moment. Today, we have pictures of the earth that have been taken from outer space through the shuttle and through other means, and the earth is a beautiful blue marble. Can you imagine, because that's what we're left with to imagine, in attempting to describe this new Jerusalem? There was a song a few years back, I can only imagine. So I'm going to sing that for you. No. <laughs> Aren't you glad I don't dare do that? But there are some truths about Jerusalem that we should know. The Bible sets Jerusalem apart from all other cities of the world. And he wants to call his heaven a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city which has been engulfed in war at least 36 times in her history. That's a lot of times of war. 17 times Jerusalem has been burnt to the ground, burnt to ashes, only to be rebuilt 18 times. Now, if you're a good southern boy like myself, I did not appreciate Sherman's march to the sea when he burnt Atlanta. Jerusalem has been burnt 17 times. That hurts if you're a Jew. But Jerusalem always seems to be the center of controversy. A lot of war, a lot of threats of war around Jerusalem. The Bible happens to use Jerusalem as its geographic center of the earth. Everything goes out from Jerusalem. The terms north, south, east, and west are always used extending out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is known as the city of God, city of the great king, city of peace. Jerusalem also happens to be the only city that crucified our Lord. Jerusalem happens to be the only city that our Lord wept over. And today, you go to Jerusalem, it is a divided city. There are four different sectors of the old city of Jerusalem. 
and they're all divided among the major religions of the world. John describes Jerusalem as the beautiful bride of Christ. So this gigantic, multicolored light, light-giving jewel with gates of pearl sitting up in the sky for all the world to gaze upon, this breathtaking, beautiful, colorful heaven where saints live and dwell, it does defy description. But John, he makes an observation. He said there's no temple in it. And to a Jew, temple is everything. There's no place to congregate and worship in this new heaven, this new Jerusalem, because the entire area, this new Jerusalem, this entire city, is filled with the glory of God. And God himself illuminates this city, this gigantic, multicolored jewel sitting in the sky. And it is so breathtaking in beauty that I don't think we'll be able to look away from it. Have you ever come upon a surprisingly beautiful scene? I started racking my brain about that. And one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen, just to come upon suddenly, was the valley floor of Yosemite National Park. That doesn't mean much to you out here in the east, but if you're in the west, it means something. If you come upon Yosemite from the south, and you're just going through rolling hills, and you go through the Wawona, Wawona, or Wawona Tunnel, and there it is. As soon as you come through the tunnel, there sits Yosemite Valley right in front of you. You see waterfalls. You see the gigantic El Capitan cliffs, granite cliffs. You see half domes sitting back in the background. And they have a place where you can pull over and park just to take in this beauty. And everybody is there getting their camera out because you've just been going through this winding road and there it is. We will be stunned with the beauty of heaven in such a way. Everybody there at Yosemite, they take their cameras out and take pictures. If it were possible, my wife would take pictures of heaven. She takes pictures of everything. We went to Israel. How many pictures did you take? 200. <laughs> few hundred. Okay, not 200. Something like 800 pictures of Israel. Hey, they're on digital. You don't have to take them all. <laughs> 800 pictures. How many would we take of heaven? Let me move along. I'm in enough trouble. The pearly gates of heaven, they're not just beautiful gates. They give us an idea of activity going in and out of heaven. You can go into heaven, you can dwell there, and you can go out of heaven. And it's 
gates to glorious light. And our God, being the source of that light, He allows us to come in and go out. Verse 26, and it's mentioned, men will bring glory and honor of the nations into the new Jerusalem. Men will bring glory and honor into the nations of the nations into the new Jerusalem. Now, my thoughts, let me underline that. My thoughts, did I say my thoughts? My thoughts, we will have the opportunity to be creative, to bring into God things that glorify God, things that will honor God. Because, you see, whenever a person loves, we desperately seek a way to show or manifest that love. I happen to think we will bring in beautiful songs or poems that we've written to our Lord. And perhaps even sing songs to the Lord like we do here. Perhaps we will play musical instruments that we've created to the Lord and play them skillfully. That would be skillfully for me. I think there will be many objects of art created and brought in to glorify God. These are my thoughts. These are my imaginations of my heart. Now here's the rub. I want you folks to think on heaven. I challenge you to consider what heaven will be like. And I want you to then share those thoughts with me sometime. Really, I'm serious on this. Now, I want your thoughts to be biblical, though, not just, you know, <laughs> whippy-doo, this is what I think, you know. Because there's been people before us that have had thoughts about heaven that are not true. No Mormon ideas, please. The Mormons think we'll all be gods. Let me tell you, we will not be gods. The Muslim thinks, hey, every male is going to have 70 virgins there waiting on. No, that's not. Those are not biblical thoughts. Give me biblical thoughts of what you think heaven will be like. And let your meditations, and I think it's always a good thing to meditate upon heaven, let them be scripturally based. And then I want you to share them with me. Maybe we'll have a time of sharing those. I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know that aren't just my thoughts. And this is a truth. This one you can bank on. This one you can write down. Heaven will be worth any sacrifice, any persecution that we could ever go through to go there. Today, we live in the age of grace. So let me urge anyone to accept Jesus as their Savior. I don't want you to ease in, but I do want you to get in. 
And when persecution comes to you as a believer, and it will come, I can guarantee to you heaven will be worth what little persecution you go through. And as believers, we have the greatest promise of inheritance ever conceived. Not conceived by man, but created by God. Heaven. Dwelling with our Lord in His glory. And all the multicolored jewels and gemstones and all the beautiful light they will give off is just a glimpse of what it will be like to dwell with Him. We only have one chapter left in Revelation. Hopefully, I said hopefully, next week we will finish the book of Revelation. And it's been a great trip through the book. It really has. So let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, I would pray for each and every person here, self-included, Lord. We want to go. We want to be part of your new heaven. Lords, our, our finite minds cannot get a grip on it, cannot get a, a reality going in our heads of what heaven will be like. We can really only imagine and look at your word and see what it has to say. But we know it will be glorious. And you give us hints, you give us clues of its beauty. And Lord, you will be there. You, the one who died for us the one who loves us so much. And Lord, to be with you and to know you as, as you are and to be known by you, Lord, is almost too good to be true. But we thank you for the hope of heaven. We thank you, Lord, that little guys like Ezekiel who died down in Mexico, Lord, he's there with you never to be separated from you. What a beautiful hope we have in heaven. So, Lord, let us count the cost of what it is to be a Christian, and then let us be like the disciples, Lord, the apostles who rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer for you. May we too rejoice, just knowing you're our Lord and our God. We thank you for preparing a place for us, Lord. And we thank you that you will be there for us. We love you, Lord, but we only love you in response to your great love. And then we thank you. Thank you for the hope of heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.